0: Just as I was sitting here and I heard the howl of the wind rushing by the building, I thought of this, um, maybe it's a koan, you know, these, um, or a haiku, these very short little poems uh, by John Wellwood when he said, um, forget about enlightenment, just sit and listen to the wind. And it's kind of like that, you know, we don't really have to go very far to really just be very present with our experience as it is. Just get very quiet still and then just these things happen all around us and in us. So last night, Howie gave a very lovely talk on the essential teachings of the Buddha, of the four noble truths. These very important teachings which really encapsulate the entire teachings of the Buddha. The first truth being that there is um, dukkha. Dukkha is the word that's used in Pali. The word dukkha is translated as often as suffering, but as how we said last night, that's not always such a good word unsatisfactoriness or distress or anxiety, that there is this truth of distress, of anxiety, of unsatisfactoriness. The second truth is that there is a cause for this, this dukkha, and that is this uh, clinging or craving, attaching on to the things that we like and rejecting the things that we don't like this grasping mind, wanting mind. The third truth is that there is an end to this cause. There's an end to this cause, and that is the letting go of that grasping, of that attaching, of that reacting. And then the fourth truth being a path, the path that we're practicing here, the path to that end of that dukkha. And when you hear that, and that being the essential teaching, the nut of the Buddhist teaching, in a way, it, it really helps us simplify what it is that we're actually doing here. We really have to understand this uh, way that we hold on, the way we get attached, the way we react, that grasping, that contracting mind. And for me that has made this practice so simple in the, because I know what to keep paying attention to. I know what to be mindful of is when, when, I, when I start to uh, tighten that grip, the grip of my mind, the grip of my body, my heart. And with more and more sensitivity that is just become so apparent when that's happening. It's so, like, yeah, I'm, I'm really caught or I'm really tight or I'm really wanting, I'm really reacting. And then knowing that, having the awareness, the recognition of that, I can begin to soften, relax that grip, relax that reaction. So it could be looked at that most of uh, the Buddhist teaching and sometimes it's said that the Buddha has taught one thing, the Buddha teaches one thing and that is suffering or dukkha and the end of dukkha. And it can seem like there, it's mostly about suffering, suffering, you know, like Buddhists get a lot of uh, flack about that, you know, you're always, you know, suffering, suffering, suffering. But the Buddha taught the end of that, the end of dukkha. And so it could be just as uh, accurate to say that the end of dukkha is is love, is release, is that awakening of the heart. It's the awakening of the heart when we are no longer in the grip of those reactive patterns. So really, you could look at it either way. You could either look at it from the lens of the dukkha, or you could look at it from the lens of the love, of the heart, Of the release because whenever I am paying attention and recognizing, and Anna taught this morning the acronym of RAIN, when I'm recognizing and when I'm investigating, I'm accepting and allowing and I'm not identifying, what is, what's actually happening is I'm cultivating and strengthening my heart of love. That's a very loving thing to do. It's a very compassionate act to want to be free of the ways I feel I am imprisoned or in bondage. That intention itself, that aspiration itself, is incredibly compassionate. And it's not only compassionate for myself to want to be free, but as you know, it means that everybody who comes into contact with us is also relieved... You know, they don't have to, (laughs) they don't have to put up with all of our, um, you know, difficulties and uh, uh, ways that we act out and get reactive and hurtful and harmful. It's like that starts to ease up and people, you know, want to be around us more. They like us better. You know, so everybody wins from that compassionate aspiration. So, so I want to look tonight a, a, more from that lens of the of the c- cultivation and the development of the loving heart, of the compassionate heart. And in our in these teachings, the the um, uh, expression of that loving heart comes through what's called these four. Brahma Viharas that we've been introducing here Brahma Vihara I mentioned the other day Brahma meaning god vihara meaning home home of the god or or uh, living in that home of our of our uh, divinity in a way it is the our the expression of our awakened mind. It is the expression of the enlightened essence that we are when we are expressing these aspects of metta or loving kindness, compassion, uh, joy, appreciative joy, and equanimity. These qualities are the expression of freedom, of a liberated mind, a liberated heart, where we're we're not bound up in those uh, patterns of confusion and ignorance that cause us to act out in ways that cause harm to ourselves and others. That releases, when that releases, the heart frees up, and what naturally comes forth is more of a uh, connecting, caring, kindness towards ourselves in all things. Why, why would we not be kind? <laughs> why would we, we not be compassionate when we see clearly, when we understand what causes our suffering, what gives rise to that? Why would we keep doing it? As, as how we spoke about last night. That's the waking up. We wake up. We, this word "enlightenment," you know, it, it can seem so much more mystical or esoteric, but really, what it means is we we free up from those those painful patterns. We wake up into our natural being, the the the, the essence of who we really are, which is not caught in that bondage. Those are conditioned patterns. Those are patterns that have that have come about through causes and conditions from the past over time, repetition over time, that have solidified, that have crystallized, that have created a certain structure of what I call me or my personality or my identity. And that's not who I really am. And that, that crystallisation of those structures can be dissolved. Like when you put um, something in salt water. I'm losing the metaphor, <laughs> but you put something salt, salt. <laughs> you put salt in water and it dissolves. It's the same thing with our our structures. When we apply mindfulness, when we apply awareness, those crystallizations start to dissolve and we become more of our essential being. So this, these beautiful qualities, these beautiful qualities of our being, uh, loving kindness, which we've, we've spoken about, this loving kindness, which really is an expression of deep friendship, a deep friendship with all things, this capacity to see the good in ourselves and others and to wish well, to just naturally want ourselves and others to be happy. You know, it's just this very simple inclination to want, want all beings to be happy. This expression of loving-kindness And compassion, which is this expression of of love, of goodwill, which is to turn towards the suffering aspect of life. This capacity to be able to turn and look at where the pain is. And in doing that, the, the heart responds with kindness, wants to alleviate that pain, doesn't want ourselves or others to be in that pain. This compassion wants this to end. This love, this loving, uh, loving wish. Sometimes this compassion is called this quivering in the heart. When we're touched by the the painful aspect of this world, the heart quivers, you know. It's, It's not easy to face that. But when we stay open to it, we're touched by it, we're moved by it. Another expression of love. Joy. This other uh, other expression of love, where we in this in the Brahma Vihara, where we actually appreciate the joy and the success that others are are having, rather than resisting it or being angry about it or or being jealous or envious, we we celebrate it. We appreciate. It. We get happy because people are happy. It's appreciative joy, an expression of of love in that connection, in that happiness. And then equanimity. Equanimity, in some ways, isn't, isn't so obvious as an expression of love because what equanimity is, it's actually when the mind is at rest and it's not caught in its reaction. It's called the non-reactive mind. So a mind that is still, a mind that is still in its spaciousness, where it's not in conflict with the conditions that are arising and passing. The, where, where the heart-mind can actually meet conditions just as they are and stay open without getting caught in wanting things to be different or, um, yeah, pushing it away, rejecting it, attaching on, wanting things to stay a certain way, wanting to control, to manipulate. The mind is restful in the face of what's arising. Beautiful quality. Beautifully um, developed quality of our being. The reason this is also also an expression of love is because it's not in conflict. Equanimity is not in conflict with anything. It can embrace, it can open the state, it can open to anything that is happening, anything that's arising. This is, in some ways, the epitome of love. It's almost called an unconditional kindness that is not, instru- not struggling not arguing, accepting. It's also called radical acceptance. In some ways, equanimity is the closest expression to the free mind, to the awakened mind, or the enlightened mind, and a mind that is completely at peace, completely at rest not so far away necessarily because we can always have moments where we feel that and experience that. It's not like something far, far in the future. There can be moments where we are actually able to face something that's difficult and feel quite steady, feel quite grounded, feel quite connected and just, and know, know, how, know what to do, know how to respond, know how to act. These are moments of, these are uh, expressions of this freedom that we can experience now, not way, way in the future. All of these different flavors. When we experience these different qualities, we also also call them moisturizer. It moisturizes the heart. It's juicy, you know. It's not dry, the heart isn't dry, the heart isn't rigid. So love, love is kind of wet, you know, it's um, fluid, flowing, open, not tight, not rigid. So these are the qualities of our natural home. However, what often happens is that we we don't experience the purity of these expressions, but rather the heart gets distorted. What I call distortions of love. We may have the intention to wish somebody well, or connect, or open, or... um, be kind or caring, but it doesn't always work out that way. We find ourselves getting triggered or caught or reactive in ways that maybe sometimes even surprise us. We don't even know what's happened. And so, so there's still kind of a movement of the love, but it gets, gets confused, there's confusion there. We call this distortions also of the ego. This is ego-mind. It's like this sense of the self. When we talk about self in Buddhism, we're talking about that um, kind of where the, the greed or the hatred or the confusion starts to solidify. And then we identify with those patterns and think that it's me. That's me. That's who I am. And we start to have this more solidified view of ourselves. And so, we, so what happens for the loving-kindness, and these are all, these, these, there's a, what's called a near enemy for each one. They look like loving-kindness, but it's not. So for, loving, for metta, for loving-kindness, what happens is when there's some distortion of the ego or, this, or there's some um, attachment or reaction in there, what it turns into is more of a self-possessed love. It's like, what's in it for me? What can I have? You know, I want you to be a certain way and I'll only love you if you're like this. And then the, the sense of me starts to become very demanding and controlling and wanting and all of those reactions start to enter into it. And then the love starts to get quite muddled and confused. Can can still, still feel like there's love and sometimes we even call that love. You know, in the culture, if you listen to all the pop songs, that's what's called love. You know, is all that dramatic love. But it's actually distorted. It's not really the pure expression of the awakened heart. When the heart gets very bound up and very contracted and solidified, where it goes to the far end, which is called the far enemy, which is the opposite it takes the form of ill will and hatred. The heart gets so contracted that it just completely inverts into hate. So the very thing that we thought we loved, we go to the complete opposite end of the spectrum and we hate. And isn't it interesting how sometimes we can even feel that that hate and love is so close, it almost feels like it's part of one circle where the love is on one side and the hate is the other, but they're really so connected. Why would we hate somebody so much if we didn't care? It's because we care so much that the heart gets so bound up, goes all the way the other way, and we start to hate and feel all this ill will and anger because we're not getting what we want. But it's still bound up in the Love but we call that the ego distortion. It's gotten all distorted. The compassion, the distortion of the compassionate heart is when the heart-mind is facing the suffering element, but it can't bear it. It gets resistant. It it resists it. It doesn't want it. it. It feels aversive towards it. So you can feel like your compassion, but what actually happens is that you want to fix it, you want to change it, you might want to rescue the person, you want to make it different so that the suffering doesn't have to continue. Now, of course, we want to alleviate the pain. We don't want to just be indifferent and not care. But that's not necessarily so helpful when we get so invested in a certain outcome and then we can't see very clearly in the way the heart actually starts to shut down, shut off. And then again we're caught in our own desire, our own wishes for what we want to have different. It's not even about the other person anymore. It's about me. It's about what I want, what I need. And there's the disconnection. We fall into deep sorrow and despair and anger and helplessness. And all those are uh, expressions of the, of the grasping, of the desire. I'm not talking about sadness. Sadness is a beautiful expression of when the heart is touched, when the heart is moved, or, or grief, when we feel the loss. And that tenderness, sadness and grief can just be so beautiful because we're so connected to the person or so connected to the situation. But it's the, there's, a, there's a line in uh, the Buddha's discourse um, which is repeated often and he says, he grieves, laments, wails and beats his chest and becomes distraught. And I think that kind of says it. You know, that's what we're talking about. He grieves, laments, wails, beats his chest and becomes distraught. You know, that kind of, no, I don't want it to be like this. And sometimes, you know, that of course is the place we go. But as we stay present and we connect, we can ground that and feel more of the tenderness of our heart. We don't have to be so caught in that wailing, that despair. There's a place where the equanimity can start to ground that. When the compassion becomes quite identified, when we we identify very much with our desire and our wanting around the outcome of, of suffering, where we can go, the opposite of that is into cruelty. Because we get so angry that we actually want to destroy that which we think is the cause of creating that pain or creating that suffering. And this is what we see in our world. The cruelty in the name of love, in the name of God, in the name of religion is confused. There's ignorance in that. It's not clearly seeing what we're really doing lost connection, lost connection to our heart, or there would not be cruelty, there can't be cruelty. There can't be inflicting more pain to get rid of pain. It doesn't make sense. It just repeats, more repetitive, reinforces the very thing that we want to stamp out. Lost connection with that pure heart of love. When we get caught up in the joy, when the, when the desire gets caught up in the joy and the attachment gets caught up, what we start, what we can start to experience is the attachment to that joy. It feels so good that we don't want to let go of it, that we become kind of over-excited and over-enthusiastic. And we can just kind of lose ourselves in that and get just giddy with it. We lose our ground. We lose connection again. We lose connection with what's happening. We're not really, you know, we're just floating in that good feeling. You know, we want that good feeling so much that it's like, yes, yes. It's almost like, you know, give me more, 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 more. Again, it's just, it's about me then. It's just more about me. I've lost connection with what's really going on. This over-exuberance, over-excitement. And if I get more and more contracted then uh, it goes into more of like ill will where I become jealous of the person, I become envious of the person, I don't want them to be happy, I don't want them to have what they have, I start wanting to do things that are hurtful or harmful through my speech or my actions, again it moves into the cruelty. We lose touch again, or comparing comparing myself to another person and then I start to believe that all the goodness is out there. They've got everything. I don't have anything. They've got all the good qualities. They've got the, the house, you know, the cars, the vacations, the money, the job, and I don't have anything. You know, and then separation, cut off, can't celebrate the, the good fortune, the good fortune that these people have or this person has. And then I just feel diminished and small and narrow, cut off. You know, from the, f- the far end, I- I'm completely cut off. I can't experience the heart. I can't experience my love. I'm just blocked. If I start to bring more awareness to that, if I start to reflect on that, there's the po- possibility to begin to soften that to open again and connect again, to recognize what I'm actually doing, that I'm doing. That other person isn't doing anything. It's not about them. It's all about what I'm doing, how I'm perceiving, how I'm viewing the situation. The last one, equanimity. When the equanimity gets distorted with attachment, and uh, rejection, what can happen is that rather than being grounded and connected and in touch with the situation, with whatever's happening, I just begin to pull back a little bit. I don't really want to be involved. And I can go easily into what's called indifference, kind of indifference or detachment. It's not my problem it's really not about me. It's their problem. I'm fine. You know, we just kind of withdraw. And the interesting thing is that this can look like the detachment of the Buddha, where I'm just really with myself and I'm with my own experience and I'm I'm very content and very happy. But what about everything else that's going on? I'm not noticing because there's just a subtle attachment. Subtle kind of like, no, I can't meet it, I can't face it. So I'm just going to ignore it. (laughs) I'm just going to pretend that it's not happening. So this kind of subtle cutting off, which again is bound, is bound up in in fear. I don't want to deal with it. But it can look like equanimity, but it's not equanimity. Because equanimity is connected. Equanimity is engaged. Equanimity is fully awake. But this kind of detachment, it's a subtle, a subtle confusion there. And when I'm really caught, really contracted in the heart, then what happens with the equanimity is I'm just caught in my reactivity just caught in the attachment and the version and wanting and not wanting and this is how it is, how it should be and how I want it, demanding, controlling, which is not equanimous. It's the opposite of equanimity. So perhaps this gives you some kind of sense of the way that the heart moves from the possibility of a very open... Connected, engaged way of being, to when the heart just starts to close down, to separate, to become identified with its preferences, its desires, fears, uh, attachments, and then the heart just—it can be called—we can call this uh, a mental veil or an emotional veil, where where that the the perception is now just not so clear. It's a distortion, a veil over the consciousness, a veil over the clear seeing. I can't see so clearly. And we feel that. We actually can feel uh, a, a bit more uh, solid, solid. We can feel more um, uh, tight or, or um, thick, kind of a thickness as opposed to when we start to soften, when we start to open a little more, we actually start to feel lighter. We feel brighter or more transparent. You know, have you felt that at times where where you actually feel like there's just no difference between you and the, the, the animals or the trees or another person where there's just, everything's just flowing. And sometimes you just feel so separate that you're here and the world is there and it's me against that and it just every, it feels just so unhappy, we feel so unhappy there. It's not, not a happy state to be in when we're like that. So our vision gets blurred And things, we don't question the way things are. It just seems like I'm here, you're there, things are just as they appear, and there's no kind of questioning of that. We're very much in that identification and that solidity. One of the things that happens when we come to meditation practice and the teachings is we start to question. We don't take things for granted. We don't say, yeah, this is how it is, or this is who I am, or I've always been like this, and there's no possibility to change, and you're like that, and you've always been like that, and it's always going to be like this. We start to question that. We, we open to this possibility that things can change and, and heal and transform. We can wake up, we can... Um, Uh, become more of who we really are. There's a trust in there, in that, there's a faith in that. W. H. Auden said, We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. We get so attached, not questioning, questioning. But this is our human condition. This is the way we see this world and the condition of humans in this world. But this path and these teachings are pointing to a way of coming out of that. We don't, we don't have to be in the bondage, in bondage. We don't have to be imprisoned. There is a way out. The third noble truth, there is an end. There is an end which is the release, which is the freedom, the pure heart's release. The pure heart's release, which then expresses itself through love connection, openness, groundedness, wisdom, compassion. This is the natural expression of who we are when the heart becomes unbounded. So the first step, and what we've been practicing here, the first step for us is the practice of acceptance. Maybe the first step is the R, is the recognition, and then acceptance. The acceptance is so key. We might say that this is really, I mean, all spiritual paths and all spiritual traditions, the acceptance is where we begin. Accepting the conditions that are arising, accepting the conditions that are passing without this struggle and conflict that we bring so often to our experience. This can also be called equanimity practice. Because when we accept and let go of one layer of the struggle, when we're not in reaction to our reaction, let's just even start there, where we're not in reaction to the fact that we're reacting. We're already, we're in the practice of equanimity. We've already started to still the mind. We've stilled that one layer of the mind that was caught. And we could look at the mind as layers, many, many layers, because when you pull back one layer, there's another one, isn't there? And you pull back another layer, there's another one of more reactivity. And then you pull back that and there's more reactivity. It seems like this is a long journey. A long path. We've got. It seems like there's a lot of work to do. At least that's been my experience. But the most important thing is that we're doing it that we're actually putting in the effort, we're putting in our our intention and our aspirations for transformation, for freedom, for liberating these patterns, these painful patterns. So the first step is the acceptance or this equanimity I want to talk about this acceptance more as equanimity practice because it's another kind of angle we you know we can we t- can talk about acceptance till the cows come home it's so we hear about it all the time yes accept 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 you know the equanimity practice in this tradition the way that we practice it is we do with the loving kindness or the compassion or the uh, joy equanimity we actually use phrases we use words that start to turn the mind or point the mind in the direction of that quality. So when we do the loving-kindness practice, we're bringing in words that then evoke that quality, like, may I be happy and peaceful. So I'm actually evoking through the words that sense of happiness and peace. May I be safe. And then feeling that. May I be... Uh, at ease, and then feeling that. So we're evoking that feeling. And that's how we do the, the practice, these Brahma-Bahara practices, through that evocation. With the equanimity, there are many different phrases, there are many different words you can use. But There's a particular phrase that I've used, is for my practice, that has been very effective and... Um, Uh, kind of a lifeline in some ways. It's been so, so important for me as a practice. And the phrase that I have used over the years is this. And as you hear it, just sort of see what happens in you as you hear the phrase. No matter how much I would like things to be otherwise, things are as they are. No matter how much I would like things to be otherwise, things are as they are. Or maybe shorthand, things are as they are. Things are as they are. I began this practice when I was spending uh, time in India, I was, there was a period of time for about 15 years that every winter I would travel to India. I was doing some teaching there in Bodhgaya, where the Buddha was enlightened um, in, at the Thai temple near the Bodhi tree. And um, I had come, I hadn't traveled very much before I first went there. I had mostly lived um, in a very a somewhat privileged uh, lifestyle, many years in San Francisco. I hadn't really seen much of the world and hadn't explored much. And so the first time that I went to India, I went into kind of shock. I hadn't been confronted with um, those kind of conditions before. And in India, if you've been there, you know this, but in India, everything is out. There's nothing hidden. There's no walls. There's nothing, you know, like they don't keep everything behind, like, you know, people who are sick are in hospitals or, you know, people who are dying or in, you know, uh, 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 or people who are dead or in funeral homes. You know, everything's out, you know. Uh, People who are sick, children who are poor, uh, people who are dying, animals, everything is just displayed. And so... I was in constant confrontation with all these things that I hadn't seen before. And I was really reactive, very reactive. And I knew that I had to start really practicing with this. And so I started the equanimity practice to help come into a, a kind of acceptance, to begin to accept the fact Because if I was not in acceptance, I was going to be in reaction. And the more I was in reaction, I was first not really connected with what was actually there in front of me. But also, I wasn't in any kind of a place in myself where I could then start to do something or act in some way that would begin to make a difference. You know, express some kind of a compassionate response or kind response or... Or over time, over the years, I was then able to start uh, uh, meeting some of the Indian families and getting to know them and their circumstances and starting to engage more directly with uh, supporting them and helping them and understanding more of the culture. But that could have never happened if I just stayed in my reaction and maybe then never went back to India again. But because I was really willing to work with it, I stayed open to it and, and a lot of transformation began to happen. So, the, so I just kept repeating. No matter how much I would like things to be otherwise, things are as they are. And when I would do that, I was able to really meet what was there in front of me. I was able to stay more open and let myself really feel the way I was being impacted Let myself feel the pain, let myself feel the sorrow, let myself feel the ways that I would collapse into despair or helplessness or, you know, just go through all the things that I needed to go through or getting angry about things or the self-righteous anger. It shouldn't be like this, you know, why is it like this? And then, you know, maybe wanting then to get angry and hurt the people who I would see hurting other people. You know, just which keeps the whole thing perpetuating. But to really start to ground more and to be more balanced and be more connected and and to feel and sense, stay connected with myself, stay connected with what was happening in the environment, with people. Incredible learning. And when I would say the equanimity phrases, often I would find that I would start to feel my helplessness if I really had to accept the way things are. I would feel helpless because I couldn't change India. I couldn't make India different than it was. As much as I would want to, as much as I would want all of those people to have a better lifestyle than they have to be, have food, to have health, to have um, uh, uh, homes, shelter, clothing, all the things that we have, as much as I would like them to have that, it's not going to happen the way that I would like it to happen. So my practice to really accept that, to accept that, but not as a resignation, not as a passive resignation, because then that's also just more of that falling away into my own kind of world again, losing connection. But to, to stay present enough so that the wisdom and the compassion can come through into some kind of appropriate way of being there, some kind of appropriate response. So subtle, it's so delicate, this, this practice that we're engaged in. How do we stay present? How do we stay here in the face of all this difficulty? So with this mindful attention, with this caring attention, this cultivating of our heart, first through the acceptance and then the opening and seeing what wants to come through. Paying attention moment to moment to moment, really touching what's real, what's true, what's true in this moment, what's true about my experience, what's true about the situation this moment. Because we can often just want to cover over that truth. We don't really want to see it. I don't really want to know. You know, I'll just go back to San Francisco. They can deal They can deal with their situation. It's not my problem. Right? Just sort of shut it down. Pretend. Ignore. Or deny. That's, those are the strategies that we often get engaged in. We just... That's the unconsciousness. We just go a bit unconscious. And not that we can, you know, stay open to everything that's happening all the time, but there is always something right in front of us that's meeting us. Conditions are arising and there's something on our plate that is asking us to be present for it or for a person or for a situation. We're being invited because that's what's happening. We accept because it's happening. Not because I like it, but because it's what's happening. That's why I accept it and I see if I can meet it just the way it is. So you might want to ask yourself, is there anything that you're aware of right now that you're covering over? Anything that you just prefer maybe not to really deal with or give much attention to. You know, it's just kind of over there and it's all right, it'll just stay over there. You know, is there anything like that for you? And it can just be even something about yourself. You know, something when you're paying attention to your experience and you notice there's this anger coming up. Oh no, I don't want I don't want anger back to the breath. You know, I'm just going to quiet myself down, still myself down. I'm not, I don't want anger. I'm not an angry person. You just kind of push it away. Or sadness, or some people have been talking about crying. You know, I don't, I don't want to cry, you know. Or if we get sick, we're not feeling so well. I don't want to be sick. I don't want to feel like this. I'm going to, I'm going to tough it out. I'm going to get strong. You know, just ways we just want to push it away not really paying respect, full respect to what's happening in our experience. So you might wanna just give a little reflection, a little thought to that this evening or as you're going along. Is there anything that you want to cover over? You don't really wanna know, you don't really wanna see. Just keep it away. It takes a lot of courage to do this practice. To stay awake. To stay present. To keep your eyes open. Where do we get that courage? Well, you've already got that courage. You know, it's really just trusting yourself. Trusting that you can meet the truth. That you can open to what's really here. And you see what happens. Take a few steps, walk in a little bit, see what happens, try it out. Rather than having an idea that, no, I can't do it, it's too much, not interested, just kind of, well, Well, let's see, Maybe maybe I can. There was a woman on a retreat who, when I was speaking about this courage and this um, invitation to open to the conditions as they are, she said that in, uh, in German uh, there is a, a word, or a couple words um, for this equanimity, for this approach. Um, and the words are uh, glick glickmut. Glickmut. And it means, the literal translation means, uh, equal courage, equal courage. And what that means is that, when I asked her more about this, she said it means to bow down to each thing whenever it arrives, as it arrives. Just bowing down to each thing, equal courage. Meaning each thing equally. And I asked her, Well, how does it actually feel as you do that, as you're bowing down to each thing? And so she sends into her experience and she said, I feel open, I feel receptive, I feel allowing. Right? Which already is a quality of of love. A kind of open, receptive, allowing. And she said, and yet I feel firm, I feel strong and a sense of unmovingness. Which is the equanimity. That kind of the unmovingness where I can meet each thing equally. This bowing down. So beautiful. Such a beautiful invitation. And, it, and it's like this um, um, poem from Rumi. And Rumi has this beautiful powerful relationship with God and it's like in Rumi said this if God said Rumi pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms there would not be one experience of my life not one thought not one feeling not any act I would not bow to Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you to enter my arms. And then Rumi said, there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not any act I would not bow to. It's like that. That's the invitation for us. But it, it requires a tremendous amount of trust. Trust a tremendous amount of trust and, and we may not feel we have that trust or that courage. It's almost like we have to trust that we have the trust. You know? we, have to, we have to start somewhere. It's trusting your sensitivity, trusting your capacity that you can walk in and that walking in to experience, immediate experience, is the opening of the heart. Where the mind, we say the mind drops, the, the, the thinking mind, the monkey mind, the mental mind, it, it, it opens up and drops, that energy drops into the heart. And that opening then expresses itself in all these different flavors the flavors of loving-kindness, the flavors of compassion, the flavors of joy, the flavor of equanimity, the flavor of forgiveness, the flavor of gratitude. And this becomes our natural home. We begin to live here more and more of the time this is what we're cultivating, this is what we're developing. This is from Trungpa Rinpoche, a wonderful Tibetan teacher and master who said, who kind of calls this the lion's roar, you know, when you can get in touch with this kind of trust and courage and energy to enter into and meet our experience in this way. The Lion's Roar. He said, The Lion's Roar is the fearless proclamation that any state of mind, including the emotions, is a workable situation. A reminder in the practice of meditation. We realize that chaotic situations must not be rejected, nor must we regard them as regressive as a return to confusion. We must respect whatever happens to our state of mind. Chaos chaos, should be regarded as extremely good news. Chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. I'm not getting that you're really excited about that. <laughs> This is the invitation. Hmm? Yeah, you read the whole thing again? The lion's roar is the fearless proclamation that any state of mind, including the emotions, is a workable situation. We realize that chaotic situations must not be rejected, nor must we regard them as regressive, as a return to confusion. We must respect whatever happens to our state of mind, Chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. So in this practice, everything is an opportunity. Every moment, every moment is an opportunity for awakening, is an opportunity for discovery, is an opportunity for release from the old patterns, from the constricted heart, from this egoic structure that we take ourselves to be. And we find ourselves opening in deep gratitude. We, this bowing becomes one of deep gratitude for this journey, for this adventure, for this potential for transformation. This one yogi said, I would not change Anything that's happened. I've learned so much. I've learned so much. So let's just be quiet for a moment. So see what you can discover about the rain and the wind, the night, the stillness. See, see how you are with all of that tonight. Thank you.